Welcome everyone at the Industria podcast. Industria is the study association for industrial engineering students at the Eindhoven University of Technology. During this podcast, we will invite inspiring people who have a background in industrial engineering. More specifically, a background in industrial engineering in Eindhoven. Together, we cover interesting and relevant topics to provide you with all kinds of knowledge and insights within the field of industrial engineering. For our first podcast today, we have invited Dr. Mindy Howard. At a young age, Dr. Howard was already dreaming of becoming an astronaut. However, her career took a different turn. At the age of 24, she came from the United States to Eindhoven to get a PhD in industrial engineering. After that, she had a long career at Shell, where she worked in different positions. Now, many years after getting her PhD, she is finally planning on realizing her dream. With her own company, Space Training, she's training people who will attend commercial trips to space. As a trainer, she will be the first Dutch woman ever to go into space. She also wrote a book about how techniques from these space trainings could actually help everyone here on Earth, called Blastoff. First of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time, Dr. Howard. We are very excited to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's an honor. As you already mentioned in our introduction, you will be the first Dutch woman to go into space and the first Dutch person who is going to space on a commercial flight. Um, where did your dream to go into space come from? Wow, um, <laughs> it sounds uh, it sounds a little bit cheesy um, this story, but um, I think just even before being uh, you know watching TV and seeing this show that inspired me called the Six Million Dollar Man, um, I'll tell you about that in a second. I, I think I've always liked the feeling of flying. I just I always remember myself um, jumping out of trees and really convinced I was flying as I was, you know, jumping down and counting like how many seconds it took me to to hit the earth and going to higher branches to, you know, to just sort of be as airborne as possible. And I think um, yeah, that that idea of flying and being airborne was something I always had, even from a little, you know, a young age. Um, used to jump off of a lot of things like kitchen countertops and stuff like that. It was really annoying for my mother, I think. But but um, then I watched this show called The Six Million Dollar Man, which he was an astronaut. And um, and yeah, he was, yeah, not to get into too much detail, but um, I was totally in love with him. And I thought, you know, he was, you know, fantastic. And, and he and I together would be going hand in hand in space. And so I think the idea of always wanting to be airborne and um, and seeing that you know this is a what an astronaut was um, on this TV show the idea of being zero g and you know working in space to me excited me to no end so the, yeah I think that's where the idea came from and uh, but I think it always was in me you know this this feeling of being wanting to be airborne yeah so you really wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. Um... But I didn't really career... know actually what it was, to be honest. I just knew that it sounded like it just like sounded like fun, you know, and everything was about having fun. Me. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but what you see is that that many people who have such a huge and, and and big dream at a young age, they will lose that dream along the way. But but you didn't, and and you've looked for ways how you could achieve the dream of of still becoming an astronaut. And for you, the answer was obtaining a degree, a doctoral degree. However, you did 
you did not choose to obtain a degree in the United States, but instead you chose to get your PhD in the Netherlands. So why did you choose for the Netherlands? Well, I'm a I'm actually a pretty practical person. Uh, I had uh, in America done my uh, my bachelor's and my master's in industrial engineering, and I had uh, received a NASA graduate student researchers grant, which was you know money for me to go and do my master's research um, actually at one of the NASA centers in not in space but in aerospace, and I really actually wanted a continue um, getting funded uh, to get my PhD in, uh, in the States with that money, but they said that uh, they would only fund, uh, they would only fund if I went to a, U a US university. Um, and then when I heard that it would take potentially up to 10 years to get my PhD in the States, I thought, whoa, that's too long. I don't, I don't think I could um, you know, survive 10 years of, of doing a PhD. And, and, and I was just, I thought there's gotta be a, an easier way, a shorter way. Um, and I started to inquire, you know, is it 10 years everywhere you go or are there, are there, you know, shorter PhD programs? And I had heard that in Europe in general, there were, um, you know, people would get their PhDs in four years. And I thought that's what I want to do because for me, I, I was not actually, really a researcher kind of person. Uh, for me, I was getting a PhD only for the idea that it would make me more interesting for NASA if I were to, when I were to apply to become an astronaut. And so uh, for me, it was necessary in order to even be looked at um, having a PhD because I was not a, a pilot. And I tried that route actually to become a pilot, but. I was an inch too short. So I, I decided to become an engineer instead as another way of, of getting of going into NASA. So, so I thought there's basically okay. two ways to go into um, to become an astronaut, like having a PhD or um, being an being a pilot. Pretty much a PhD in a technical career and uh, yeah, a technical exactly. study. I'm sorry, in a technical study. So that could yeah but it has to be um something like a, a degree in science it can't be like a phd in um i don't know arts and letters or mm -hmm. something like no. that yeah understand so yeah for me um industrial engineering was something i studied as a, with my bachelor's and master's and i really enjoyed it because it was extremely people oriented um and it had so many different types of uh subjects that kind of went into um uh you know industrial engineering from ranging from the organizational design uh, psychology human factors safety management and training like all of these things interested me so it, for me industrial engineering definitely made the most sense out of all the other types of engineering but also you know there, it was such a wide varied um, study that there were so many different directions that I could go. I thought it, it gave me so many options. So I ended up going to Eindhoven because in the end, Eindhoven um, offered me uh, an IO and what is it? Uh, assistant and opleiding. So uh, also like a type of grant to study for four or to, to get my PhD for four years. And uh, that was, that was great. And I was their first, Female foreign PhD student. It was an experiment. Oh, really? 
Yeah. So I couldn't believe it actually, but um, <laughs> and after you, they came. They came. They there came many more. I think. I hope so. I don't know if, I, if they thought, "Ooh, after her, we don't want any more." But, <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, I think it was a little bit of a, a culture shock, on, you know, all around from from their side and from my side because uh, yeah. there definitely was a culture shock for me, just sort of learning to get used to the Netherlands and, uh, you know, and doing things. Yeah, yeah. So, did you feel welcome when you got here, or did you also feel like? A little bit lonely in the beginning. Yeah, I was, you know, it, it was, it was like, it felt like it was a little bit isolated here, and there was just a way of doing it, and my way of being this, you know, kind of fast moving, you know, maybe big mouth New Yorker <laughs> was a real mm. shock in in Brabant uh, for some of my professors, I think, because yeah, I was always used to sort of. You know, speaking my mind and you know that sort of stuff, and I think they were not used to initially thinking. You know, having students necessarily telling them what they should be doing and speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was it was just like we we all had to get used to each other. Um, and I had to chill out a bit, and you know, I th and I think it was also I think also as a woman, it was it was I was I was a little bit scary. <laughs> To um, to many of my professors because I was just sort of like ah, all over the place and they were like holy cow who is this girl <laughs> so um, what is she doing my what is she doing so yeah I think I think we we each had to learn to sort of go into the middle ground um, in order for mm -hmm. us to to finally uh, survive it together all right but it, but in the end you you succeed in in obtaining your PhD yes uh, within four years. Yes. Um, and and after what, what was your plan thereafter? Because I think the dream was still going into space, become an astronaut. So you applied as so I, applied I heard, to NASA. Uh, NASA, yes. Yeah, I applied to NASA and I got on their list of highly qualified candidates, astronaut candidates, which was from the two the the many thousands down to the last two hundred people, which was good. And so people said to me, you know. You should just keep trying because it's hard, you know. Eventually, you could make it, and and that's what I did. But I was totally, you know, I felt like God. I got my PhD. I did everything I was supposed to do. Why? Why was it not happening? And uh, and then I thought about, you know, there must be another way that I can increase my chances uh, to become an astronaut. And then I had uh, thought, well, if I became Dutch, I can apply to the European Space Administration, and that's what I did. I also did that, um, but then. I didn't even make it on their highly qualified list because they were not accepting astronaut candidates for another 10 years. Um, long story. So, uh, and, so that never worked at the European Space Administration. But yeah, so I was really kind of gutted, you know, when, when it yeah, didn't happen. Yeah, because I can imagine you are very disappointed when you reach the final 200 candidates, um, but in the end they do not choose you. How did you cope with that disappointment and turn that around um, and stay motivated? Well, I think I had to kind of um, put the dream on a back burner um, and realize like maybe this is not my time. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's just not my time. And uh, you know that was that was that was pretty tough. And I you know tried to focus on uh, something else, which is you know, after graduating, getting a decent job and, um, yeah, and trying to sort of put my energy into something else. And then 
yeah, I ended up uh, getting a job at Shell. In fact, they didn't, I mean, this is also kind of an interesting story to tell students, but um, there was no job as a human factors engineer at Shell uh, when I first started. And I think this is all, the, this is the way I got every single job I ever had, um, which was never applying the normal way and like filling out a form and then, you know, sending your, your resume and your, you know, your grades in and, and then having a normal interview, like, you know, in terms of a, you know, these, a typical interview for a job. I always, I looked at, for example, the human factors directory, which was a list of human factors professionals that I had, I had joined the human factors society. And I thought, you know, let me see in that book, it was a book, um, <laughs> who is working for Shell in the area of human factors and maybe I could just, you know, have a conversation. And I found a couple names and I called people on the phone and I said, hey, I saw that you're working, you're having something to do with human factors engineering at Shell. Tell me more about what you're doing in Shell. And then they would be like, oh, actually, I'm not a human factors engineer. I'm a whatever, I'm a doctor, but I, you know, I see problems all the time because of bad human factors engineering. Um, and I said, oh, well, are there any human factors engineers in Shell? And they said, no, we don't even know what it is, <laughs> really. <laughs> and they said, maybe you can come and tell us about it. So, you know, I kind of invited myself to have a conversation with the person I was talking to, and they created a job for me. And I was the first human factors engineer in Shell. Um, but, but, why, but why Shell, then, of all the companies? Well... Yeah, I, I think I wanted to um, get a job with a large multinational originally and, and then move back to the States. Mm. That was my, my plan, which, of course, didn't work out because, uh, no, well, the thing is, you know, I ended up, once I got the job at Shell, it was such a great job. I didn't, I didn't want to move back. Um, I had, you know, the ability to travel to all sorts of different countries and do, in this case, my first role which uh, was human factors engineering. And I got a chance to teach um, human factors engineering to other engineers and why, you know, why that was important, how they should be using that in the kinds of engineering that they were doing, kind of design work they were doing and how it would help their job um, be better, for example, because they were only designing, you know, sort of fit for purpose, but not fit for people. And why, you know, stuff that they were doing um, they didn't see their, the design errors that they would be making because they never saw the plant, let's say, in operations and all the problems they created because they didn't have an idea about how people um, work. So I was trying to bring all different types of engineers together and operators so that they can kind of learn from one another. And um, I had such a good time, you know, teaching, you know, training different engineers, so creating a training for different different functions and then going out into the field, um, doing advising in that area, as well as training people when there was new projects and project engineers. I had such such an interesting job. I thought, hmm, I gotta keep doing this. <laughs> and then in Shell, you had um, so many other different possibilities. You know, it's, it's you usually don't have you know, one job for life, or I'm, I'm not a specialist. So I, you know, at a certain point after six years, I, I thought I'd like to move into another part of the business and then ended up doing something completely different, which was uh, becoming a diversity consultant. 
And so, um, yeah, and, and actually I had to learn about what that was and learn about, you know, how to, how to facilitate diversity sessions with senior leaders and with businesses and making diversity uh, plans and things like that. But um, I had to be trained myself in order to um, understand you know, what is diversity and inclusiveness and how does a company um, try to apply this and change you know, themselves from the inside out because we had discovered at Shell that something like uh, you know, within three or five years, 50% of all the women were leaving. At first they thought it had to do with everybody was going and having babies, but then when they actually in exit interviews, they realized it had nothing to do with that. It, it was just that women were feeling like they couldn't take their whole selves to work. They felt like they had to, you know, put a mask on and they they would leave. So, you know, imagine the costs of that um, for an organization. Yeah, so I read in this article, in this interview with the cursor, um, that you're very proud of your time as a senior diversity consultant at Shell, um, you created this network, this community yeah. for women. Um, now I'm wondering, the TOE has this new policy where they temporarily only hire mm -hmm. women. Um, what do you think of that? Do you agree with such a policy? Well, if you would have asked me back in the day when I was a diversity consultant, I would, I would have said no. Um, because, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's also a difference between positive discrimination and positive action. And those, so when you use the words, they only hire women, you have to be careful because the question is, you know, are they qualified or are they unqualified? Uh, you know, do they, are they hiring anybody who can just wear a skirt or are they hiring actually, um, you know, they're trying to get more women into the, the pool, in the hiring pool. And then if there's an equal candidate, you know, they'll take the one which is the most diverse, uh, in this case, women. Um, and, you know, and I, and I'm, from what I understand, what Teo Eindhoven is also doing is that they're not now opening the pool to men until they first have, um, have you know, enough female candidates the role uh, to, to see if they're female candidates for the role. So I think originally the idea is like, I never agreed with positive discrimination, which was about, you know, hiring just somebody who can wear a skirt and it doesn't matter if they were able to do the job or not. It wasn't for me about getting a woman in the position at all costs, even if they were not competent to do the job. But I think, um, you know, the thing is like Shell went through this whole um, diversity and inclusiveness program spent, you know, part of the, when I was working there, they were spending $10 million uh, a year in trying to improve the, the diversity situation. So when I was working for the, that role, you know, every year they'd spend $10 million training people, trying to get people to understand where all their biases are, why, you know, how can people choose themselves when they, um, they choose people like themselves when they are hiring individuals and um and even with all this education if you look at you know how the numbers actually have moved in order to you know and how they move let's say in an organic way so based on people knowing better and having more awareness you know it went from uh five percent of all the women who were senior leaders to something like eight or nine percent in 10 years time 
And then you think, wow, that's still pretty bad. You spend all this money and effort and, and still we're not able to, um, to increase those numbers. There must be something else going on. And Norway, Norway um, and the Scandinavian countries, you know, have had the policy where they have put women on seat um, sometimes when they weren't fully qualified, but they gave them a lot of coaching and support to get them qualified in order to kind of create enough critical mass so that they can um, eventually there'll be enough women hiring women, other women that um, you can then let the system function normally and say, let the best person, man or woman, get the job. But I uh -huh. think you need to get, and now I believe this, enough critical mass um, in terms of people who are different in on seat in order to have that work. And if they're not there, you end up choosing the same kinds of people who are like yourself all over and over. And that's just human nature. You know, people hire, people feel comfortable with people like themselves. So, yeah, I do. I do agree with the policy, even though um, I think I probably wouldn't have agreed with it 20 years ago. Um, so after you left Shell, uh, you again followed your lifelong dream to become an astronaut uh, again. Uh, could you tell us about that? Well, yeah, it didn't actually happen that way. <laughs> um, it, it, it started when uh, when Shell was having a big reorganization. And they were asking for volunteers for people to leave with a pot of money. And I raised my hand and I said, I'll take the money. And then they said, oh, we'll also offer you a training to help you secure your next job. What do you want to be? And I thought, okay, now's my chance to kind of rekindle my dream again. Because I had really put it on the back burner. And then I, uh, I said to the career counselor, kind of looked at him straight in the eye and I said, I want to be an astronaut. And he looked at me like, come on, what do you really want to do? He thought you were joking. <laughs> and I said, no, this, he thought I was joking, yeah. And uh, so I said, no, I really want to be an astronaut. And I managed to convince him to send me away to this um, course where I got to feel um, the changing G-forces inside a centrifuge where these Virgin Galactic uh, astronauts also do their physical training. And I learned about what who Virgin Galactic was, and 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 the difference between you know governmental space agencies versus commercial space, and uh, and that that really was interesting for me because I thought, oh, this is interesting, um, you know, giving people more access to space. And in my training, although I was able to withstand the g-forces um, without too many problems i saw some of my you know um, other training people in in the course that some of them were really struggling and i had thought that maybe there was a training to help them kind of calm down and mentally they calm for you know these g-forces and when i asked at the training center they had said there was no training out there to help people mentally um, prepare for their space flight only physically, which is what I was doing at, um, at that course. Because, and I thought, hmm. Because what was the because what was the real struggle that those people had? Well, basically staying calm. Uh, they were, you know, some people were, you know, so nervous and giddy, and um, they were getting a little bit panicky because you know they started to feel, let's say, uh, you know, tunnel vision going you know, they're uh, happening with the different changing G-forces. And even though you learn about it, 
when it starts actually happening to you, it's a, you know it's potentially a, a pretty scary experience because um, then people can black out. Um, other people, you know, felt nauseous um, and they thought you know if people start feeling nauseous and focusing on that, that can also be scary because then they think, oh, I'm going to throw up. So all sorts of things can happen in the centrifuge, um, and that means all sorts of things can happen on these space flights if you do not sort of get yourself used to it and prepare for it. Yeah, so you start your own company in that. Were you the first in the market to, to do such a thing? I was. I was. Um, you know, everybody thought it seemed like, you know, it made sense to have a mental training for space. Uh, as a business because you know they couldn't believe there wasn't one out there and to and to date um i only know of uh one other business out there that's just kind of starting in this area so um but in, you know there i mean it's a very small niche to be honest um of people who are going to be able to um at the moment do these um space flights yeah and uh, yeah, but I, I just thought like this, you know, still when it's when it starts happening, because 800 people have bought tickets on Virgin Galactic, you know, when it starts happening, that's when, you know, they're really going to need that help in order to to stay calm and focused, you know, for their space flight. So in order they can achieve their mission, whatever their mission is when they go into space, because everyone's mission is different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, like very interesting career, you finally found a way to actually go into space. I believe the the trip into space is planned in 2023. Yeah. So, but that that actually is through a completely like I didn't plan this trip to space. Actually, I mean, I started to to be doing uh, training, and along came somebody uh, who called me after he heard my TED talk. Uh, which I gave in 2017 because I thought I need to get out there and let me let people know that this is available. And um, and I hadn't heard anything from anyone and you know after the TED talk, but when in, in 2018 I got this random call from a guy who said, you know, who who's running a business in the states who says you know we're going to be actually creating um, a type of competition where individuals from all over the world can enter for free. And you know they're going to be doing different challenges, and they're going to be able to win a trip to space. Who uh, the winners of the competition? And in fact, anybody who's out there who wants to enter this competition, it's called Career Astronauts. If you check, if you type in um, in Advancing X slash Career Astronauts, everybody who is over 18 can enter this competition um, and go uh, yeah, do these challenges. And who knows, maybe. You can win a trip to space, and it's absolutely free. So um, when when this person called me on the phone and said, you know, we're going to be doing this competition, we're going to need an astronaut trainer. Would you like to help train us and then come with us to space? That was a complete surprise out of nowhere. And um, yeah, and of course I was thrilled. And I remember getting off the phone, screaming, <laughs> <laughs> like, huh? What? Huh? How is this possible? Oh my God. And um, yeah, but it's, you know, I would never have expected that the way I would have gotten to space would be because somebody calls me on the phone and happened to have seen my TED yeah, that's talk. Insane. So I did not plan that. Um, but I mean, I think I do believe that my intention to go to space and 
doing this, like my energy and my focus has been this all along, mm -hmm. you know, since, since starting uh, inner space training. So I do think the universe surprises us sometimes when we, when we really kind of stay focused and keeping the dream so just, alive. Just out of interest, like what does such a commercial trip look like? Like how long is it? Do you just go into space and it's, just go back it, or? It kind of, it's a 90 minute journey. Um, and uh, these these commercial flights, and we're, we're talking about the suborbital flights. Um, so what happened yesterday what, with SpaceX was actually an orbital flight to the space station, and that's different. That's uh, so the space station is around 400 kilometers from Earth, and it takes like a day to get there. Um, but these Virgin Galactic and uh, Blue Origin flights are, um, you know, less than 90 minutes. Um, and if I were to describe a Virgin Galactic flight. What happens is that for the first, you take off like a regular plane at the spaceport or an airport for space, and then you uh, kind of circle up to 50,000 feet, uh, and then the mothership will release the spaceship that you're on, um, will fly away, and the rocket boosters will ignite, and then all of a sudden you will get launched. Um, up to the apogee, uh, which is 100 kilometers uh, into space. And that's going to be about, uh, that launching period is probably about 30 seconds long. And then you'll have to, and that, that's the three and a half Gs that will take the blood in your head and then, you know, it'll rush, make it rush down to your feet. And um, if you don't do your anti-gravity straining maneuver, and your breathing exercises, you know, to keep the blood in your brain, you will black out. Um, and then after that one minute, you'll be able to um, catch your breath, then take your seatbelt off, and you'll have four minutes to fly around the cabin where you will be able to, uh, you know, get the different views of space um, and do whatever you wanted to do during those four minutes. You know, some people want to. Uh, just look peacefully at the earth and others might want to make a, a music video and others might want to do somersaults and but for everybody it's different and then I the bell will ring and you'll get back into your seat um, and then you'll have to strap in and go uh, through re-entry which will be about six G's um, pushing down on your chest because they kind of turn the chair so that the weight is distributed mm -hmm. you know all like pushing down on your chest instead of on your head um, and yeah, and then you'll have to do some more breathing exercises for about, you know, 30 seconds or so. And then you'll land like a normal plane into the spaceport. And all of that is in, you know, that will take about 90 minutes. So it's just, um, it's never dull <laughs> that time. And that's, and the thing is, if you are kind of freaked out at any particular phase or not functioning well, uh, for whatever reason, because maybe you haven't done your, your anti-gravity straining maneuver well, or you haven't done your breathing exercises, or you haven't mastered staying calm, um, you will then potentially screw up the rest of your flight, or at least the next few phases. And so, um, you know, your it's going to be over before so you know training it. Is and essential. so that's why you need. I think it is, but to be honest, um, you know these. Uh, there are no there are no uh, rules and regulations saying that people have to go through any kind of training. All you need to you just uh, right now what they're doing is just signing a waiver 
and um, and then hoping for the best. And I think, ooh, this is mm. going to be not turning out well for, for a lot of people soon mm -hmm. because um, you know you just can't imagine what it feels like you know and uh, unless you've gone into a centrifuge or unless you've done some also some mental training you need both I yeah. think um, because it's yeah it's just it's nothing like you've ever experienced before on no. earth no. so I think it's crazy not to do it but I think there's plenty of people signing up and going to be going initially without any training. Oh. So you will um, attend uh, a commercial flight in 2023 um, to help these people uh, physiologically. Uh, you train uh, people getting phys physiologically ready for space. Mm, but in your opinion, everyone can use this kind of training that you also give with your company um, in, in daily life. And therefore you wrote the book uh, Blast Off, Train Like an Astronaut for Success on Earth. And this book tries to help people on Earth with techniques of commercial astronaut training. Um, so what was the main reason you wrote this book? What, what was your goal? Well, initially, um, as I was doing trainings for astronauts, um, you know, they told me that people in the class said, hey, these techniques seem also to be useful for other uh, earthly uh, stressful scenarios. Um, and you know, why don't you offer the the training for these kinds of people, for, for regular people um, not planning on going to space. And lo and behold, I did that. Um, people got a lot of value out of many of these techniques. And then at a certain point, I thought, you know what, it's nice to just make this book, make a book to, to kind of talk about, you know, how these techniques apply to going on um, sort of the metaphor of going on any kind of journey. You know whether you're going to space or whether you're going on any kind of transformational journey, um, whether that be getting a new job or changing careers or doing anything that's a little bit scary, mm -hmm. kind of going into the unknown. And it's a, it's about helping people go into the unknown and stay calm and focused, no matter what happens and who might be getting in the way. So that's that was the the, the point of this whole you know of doing this psychological training, not just for you know, not just for astronauts, but everybody needs these techniques. And so, um, yeah, it's it's pretty much the the idea of sort of breaking um, breaking a task down into its smaller parts, more manageable chunks. And um, like what I do is I look at the whole um, flight profile, which I just described to you of going, you know, getting launched, going into weightlessness, going into reentry, you know, um, staying calm. These different you know, I broke the whole thing down into um, subtasks uh, in terms of like, okay, what would success look like? Success for these astronauts looks like, you know, for some phases looks like uh, just stay, you know, could be just staying calm and focused. And other phases, it could be, you know, something physical that they have to do, like their breathing exercises, or it could be, you know, whatever they want to accomplish during the four minutes, um, whether or not they're able to do those things. And then, you know, based on breaking the task down into smaller, more manageable chunks, you can start to see where the challenges are for these subtasks and how do you overcome those challenges. And so um, that is one technique that's used, but, you know, it's purely industrial engineering, I think, um, and nothing more than that. And then there's other techniques, um, you know, that are in the, that are also in the training. Um, but, you know, a lot of the things are about, you know, preparing for things that can be prepared, that preparing for things that can be prepared for, 
um, and you know, and taking things and breaking things into smaller bite-sized pieces, which are manageable. And these are basic industrial engineering <laughs> um, techniques too. Yeah, so I think you're very proud of, of that book. Yeah, I think I, I you know, I'm, I'm happy uh, that, you know, that it's out there for people to read. Um, I hope that uh, I hope that more people are, are going to be reading the book too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's available, by <laughs> the way, on my website, <laughs> innerspacetraining.com. Right. Um, so yeah, um, and if uh, if people want to, uh, if people who are listening uh, would like to get a copy, you know, you can always sort of order the book, and I'm happy to also uh, to write something special for industrial engineering listeners. Oh, that sounds great. So, but you can, yeah. So people can can do something, can order the book that way. But just write me a little note and tell me that you're you've heard the podcast, and and I'll write you a a nice little saying. Well, now you've you've been the first Dutch woman here in Eindhoven to to do a PhD. You've been the first Dutch woman that's going into space. Um, probably. probably. What will be next? <laughs> well, I, th I think um, for me, my ultimate dream is to get myself also on one of these uh, to the space station or a space hotel, a, a place that I could stay out in space at least for a week, um, you know, to fully be able to sort of soak in the whole experience. Um, and, you know, for me, if I could, if I could be a, uh, you know, a, an astronaut coach, at the space hotel where people will be, you know, having, you know, weekly visits to the to the space hotel, um, which is something coming up in the future, and helping them out. Um, I would I would love I would love to do a role like that. That would be the ultimate. Is that dream. the future? And I space think, hotels. I think so. I think so. I think it's going to be more and more happening. I mean, it used to be that. You know the technology is there. They just didn't have a way of getting there. Um, and now with SpaceX and with Boeing um, starting, you know, both both of their commercial, um, yeah, their their commercial operations. That's you know this is coming in the future. You know, so uh, and you know, and hopefully things will get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Now things are very expensive, but um, I think if people also want to just get a space experience, there's all sorts of types of space training that they can also do um, just to get a feeling of what that's like. And that's also, you know, that that's becoming more available um, that people can, uh, can, you know, to, for pay for an astronaut training experience. I'm working also with another uh, group of people in uh, the UK called Blue Abyss. And they are also the first commercial uh, space training company, sort of like they, where they'll have parabolic flights and centrifuges and also the mental, my mental training all under one roof and that you know this is also the future that people you know if, if you even if you can't afford to go to the space hotel you'll be able to get a type of astronaut um, training experience uh, for not so much money so uh, for any people who are interested in uh, in doing any kind of uh, yeah space experiences this is coming up uh, and then in the close what future. does it cost now just out of interest if I wanted to go into space like right now what would I have to pay? Uh, so a Virgin Galactic flight um, is about a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to save your money for that. But, <laughs> it, 
Check your pocket. However, if you want to, you know, experience zero gravity, you can do a parabolic flight, which is something I've done. Um, you know, and here, and that's only about mm -hmm. 6,000 euros. Uh, and that's also, that's doable. And then you feel what it's like to be weightless. And, um, and that's pretty cool too. So it's, it's getting, it's close. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's kind of more realistic for most people, but I think more of these kind of experiences are, are coming up, um, and feeling what it's like to, yeah, to be, uh, to be weightless. Well. Finally, I would like to I would like to ask you what is the biggest lesson you learned during your career, and what would be a takeaway message for for students? Well, I think it's uh, it's all about dreaming big and never giving up on your dreams. I think in my case, um, you know, I had so many so many haters that told me that I was you know being ridiculous and in, in wanting to become an astronaut and. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, will kind of put you in your place or try to put you in your place and, and kind of say to you, do normal, uh, you know, why do you want to do these things? But um, I really think that, uh, and it wasn't just an Eindhoven that I had this, I had this every, I think, you know, all over for the last 30 years um, until things actually started happening. I really think that, you know, if you, if you really believe in, what you're doing and actually take steps to make it happen. Um, you know, your opportunities will come, even if they come eventually, even at the ripe old age of 58, <laughs> which in my case is way too old um, for that, but it's, it, you know, better late than never. So uh, I'm not complaining, believe me. I'm, I'm super excited, uh, even if it is gonna happen, Three more years from now. Yeah, right. do normal is such a Dutch expression. It's like you're not allowed to dream big here. And I think I think that's got to change. I really think that's what the Dutchies, in a way, need to learn from the Americans. Yeah, I agree. They, and and vice versa. There's a lot of things that the Americans need to learn from the Dutchies. But, but this particular lesson, I think, is is a good one for everyone because it's just you know I, things will happen if you believe in yourself. I agree. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic advice to end this podcast with. Thank you for being our guest today, Dr. Howard. Make sure everyone to check out the book Blast Off. Our next guest will be Harry Walters, CEO of Dove. And if you have any question for Harry, please send it to us because the best question will be rewarded with a signed copy of Minnie Howard's book. Yes, exactly. It's uh, not quite a trip into space, but it's uh, still a great thing to win. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really want to thank Dr. Howard for her time and I hope you all enjoyed this first episode of the Industria podcast. Our next podcast will be online in two weeks, so see you next time. <laughs>